Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they develop to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And Michelle, I'm excited today. Our guest is Lindley Baker. How are you, Lindley? I'm excited to be here. This is going to be so great. Lindley's got several different stories to share and so many lessons to help us learn about resilience and, and moving forward when life, you know, wants to throw you backwards and Lindley, we're just grateful that you'd join us. I know you've written a book. I know you do some consulting and coaching, so there's a lot of directions to go. But I'm wondering if you could start by just introducing us and our listeners to you, kind of your background, your family, your story. Let us get to know Lindley a little bit before we jump into kind of the details. Uh, sure, thanks. I was born and raised in Massachusetts. My parents joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was two years old. So I don't remember being a member of another church, but it meant that usually I was the only member in school or whatever group I was with, unless I was at church. We had a very close family. I had four siblings, one adopted, and we did a lot of music as a family, and we had uh, a priority for education, too. So I had a really blessed childhood. I got married when I was 21 in the Washington, D.C. temple, and I was sure that was forever. I was sure that was forever for, for decades. And I'm actually like, the last person I would expect to be talking about my personal experience of divorce, but there are surprises that come along in life, and uh, this was my biggest one. So can you tell us a little bit, backing up... Um... How did you meet your husband? How did you two come to start your relationship? And what did life look like in the early years of your marriage and starting your own family? I was totally inspired to marry this guy. I was graduating from the Wharton School of Business, and I had gone to Columbus, Ohio for a job interview. And while I was there, I had this like spiritual bolt of lightning that just came from the sky and down through my whole body, like, you're supposed to move here. And I'm like, okay. And I hadn't even had the interview. The interview was the next day, but I kind of knew it would go well. And it did. And I moved there. And then about less than a year later, this gentleman came back from his mission. And so I met him at the Institute. And he 
and I started dating right away. The, the our first date was kind of an interesting invitation. He said, uh, <clears throat> "This guy named Erie and his girlfriend Kathy and I are going to the movies on Friday night, and I was wondering if you might like to come along." <laughs> so I thought, "Oh, okay, he's asking me out," but um, it wasn't, you know, completely direct. But he was always gentle and a gentleman, and we dated for four months. We were engaged for five weeks. And we got married. And one reason we had a short engagement was that we were both still studying. And if we were married, you know, we could be at home together in the evening studying instead of leaving our studies to go on dates. So we had a successful time studying after we got married. I um, love that you after- casually mentioned that you were graduating from Wharton. Um, let's, I'm just going to totally interrupt there for a minute because... I think you and your husband, your your ex-husband now, but like you said, you grew up in a home that valued education, but you also have a fairly strong intellectual background to where it wasn't just that you thought education was important, but you were very educated and successful in school, and the same for your your husband as well. Is that is that correct? No, he actually grew up in a family that didn't have education as a priority. His um, family had... A few generations of being poor and having broken families, and it actually started at the the pandemic of 1918, when oh, wow. his great great grandfather forget if it was two greats, but he died leaving 12 kids, and the oldest was 18, oh. and so they just really struggled. And my ex's parents, great people, they they just wanted to have a stable, intact family and. They were good Catholics and good Christians, and that's what they gave their kids. And if they wanted to go to college, that was up to them. So, uh, But my ex was very interested in being able to make a good living, and so he was getting his undergrad while I was, well, well, when we first got married. I had finished my undergrad already when I was 20, and then so I was studying to be an actuary, and that has, like, master and doctoral level designations, kind of like an MD or a JD, and I studied on those for the first four years of our marriage. Okay, so at that time, you're, I love how you said we got married so we could study together. Like, that's pure romance right there. What, um, <laughs> how about your family? How, how about your family? And those? So it sounds like it was a, it was a happy marriage. It was a happy beginning, and you're, you're both kind of pursuing education and getting started. You, I know that you have several children. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginning of your family life in that regard and how that tied into school and career and having children? So when we got married in the temple, we thought it was a great gift from God for him to promise us that we could be married forever and that it wasn't a matter of if we can get along, it's just a matter of figuring out how, because God already said we could. And so we didn't have a real difficult first year like a lot of people. We just got along. And another thing that we set up right at the beginning was we decided that we would never argue or fight because whatever we might be arguing or fighting about had to be less important than our eternal relationship. Wow. Well, and, th- that is... And it, and it worked well? It sounds like it worked for a while? It it worked forever. 
Well, did it though? I mean, that to well, me. So no, I had he never fought or argued. He just <laughs> left one day. Oh, okay. Well, so well. So, yeah, you, you know, I I've actually heard this, and I, I I was LDS for active for many many years, and um, also had family members that kind of operated on the same belief, and we're never going to go to bed angry, we're never going to go to bed upset or mad. But the opposite, what happens is resentment because there's no ever resolving issues and working on anything. So my husband and I had the the exact opposite problem where we brought everything to the forefront. And sometimes there would be days as we would be bashing it out, trying to figure out how to make things happen. I don't recommend that either. I mean, eventually we, we sought out uh, family therapy instead as a healthier way to try to resolve conflict. But um, so... Yeah, I mean, I mean, do you feel like that kind of just was like a, you guys had this ideal idea of this, or was this modeled in both of your families where you just didn't talk about things? Well, we were we were on the same page, and it wasn't that we didn't talk about things. We spent a lot of time talking about things. We just talked about things calmly until we came to an agreement. We just didn't argue and we didn't fight. And so. I, I think I can see what you're saying, um, Lindley, where, you know, there's a difference between, oh, we'll just pretend everything's fine and we never disagree versus, okay, we're going to get, you know, really heated with each other. So tell us about, we, we obviously know that at some point things go wrong, but first let's back up really quick and hear a little bit about your kids and kind of the timeline there of, of how they joined the family and this fairly idyllic setup you've got set up. And then, of course, we will have to hear where things started to just completely fall apart. So we had our first son in, after two years, and then a year later we had our second son. Two years later we had our third son. And three years later we moved to Japan as a family, and we had our fourth son there. So we had four boys, five and under, and then shortly after um, we got there, six and under, living in a foreign country. And it was beautiful and it was crazy. My ex had served a mission in Japan, so he was fluent in the language, but I was just learning. And I don't know what I would have done without the the church there. Our ward, it was in Hiroshima, had uh, several American families there, and we supported each other. And we also integrated well with the with the Japanese, but it was just nice to have some other Americans there that also had kids and were going through the same thing, sending their kids to the same schools and things like that. So so that was for three years. And then were you working at that time, Lindley, or were you home with your children and your husband was working? What was kind of the day-to-day setup for your family while you lived in Japan? I was not working. I was working well uh, until we moved to Japan. So I worked okay. full-time. And then when my second child was born, I resigned work to take care of the kids. And then when my ex went to grad school, I went back to work. And that was for about two years until we moved to Japan. He got his MBA and then we moved over there. Where did you go after Um, Japan? Then we went straight to Shanghai, China. And that was even crazier. It was very much a backward country at that time. Most people rode bikes around. There was a lot of construction, so there was dust everywhere. And we lived in a neighborhood that was for foreigners only and had 
big 16-foot cement walls with barbed wire on top, and it was patrolled by guards with machine guns, which they said was to protect us from the natives, but maybe it was to keep us apart. And so there I only got to know Chinese people through my teaching. I got to teach actuarial science at a university there. Actually, it was the very first course for the first actuaries of their whole country. And it, an actuary is a mathematical professional, kind of like an engineer for insurance or Social Security. So if the government wants to change Medicare or Social Security or something and they want to know like how much a certain program would cost, the actuaries would figure that out. Or if you buy life insurance or health insurance, the actuaries, they figure out the pricing, they work with the money, the probabilities, the the design of the products. So did you and teach so that in English? You must have spoken English. Or did you teach that in Chinese? Well, I actually taught it in English because these you know, okay. are going to take the American exams to certify, oh, wow. which they had to do in English. So they knew written English, but they really didn't know listening and speaking and so the first few well, weeks, mathematical I English slowly. is different from conversational. <laughs> right, right. But these, these students were absolutely brilliant. Uh, China had gathered some really great people to be their first actuaries. And even though they were taking the exams in a foreign language to them, they took two exams at the end of the year I taught, and 100% of them passed the first exam, and 97% oh of them passed the second exam, and Americans that go to American universities, it's about 30% pass. Oh, wow. Wow. Significant. (laughs) Okay, so you're living living overseas. Is there anywhere else you guys live together? I mean, you've got this family. You're sometimes working, sometimes not working. He's working. You're both educated. You're literally moving around the world. Sounds like quite an adventurous married life together. Yeah, it, it's, it was a wonderful life. So we're in China, and we have four sons and no daughters. And I had great relationships with my mother and my grandmothers, and I wanted a daughter. So we started the process to adopt a Chinese orphan girl, and I chose her as I was volunteering at the local Shanghai Orphanage. That was kind of the only opportunity to volunteer for the wives of all the men that were working there as foreign workers. So I enjoyed going there about once a week and just trying to make a difference in a horrible place. <laughs> but the the yeah. one girl we got, she's she's awesome. We got her when she was three and she was able to live at our house for about 10 months as we were working on the paperwork for the adoption. How beautiful. And so what year was that when you adopted her? That was 96. And it was kind of crazy. About the time, like within a week of when we brought the girl home to foster her, I found out I was pregnant. And oh. I ended up <laughs> giving birth to a girl in Hong Kong. Oh, wow. Right. right uh, just two months before the adoption was final. So oh, I ended up goodness. with two daughters. <laughs> so six kids total. Yes. Right? Six, and you lived in Japan and China. Did you live anywhere else besides the United States in those countries? Yeah. So we moved 
back to the U.S. in 96, and we were there for about 11 years, and then we lived for four years in Paris, France, where, when the, the younger three was still home and the older three were grown, which was also wow. a great experience. Very cool. I love that you're so well-traveled, well-lived. Um, we need to take a break, and when we come back, I would love to hear how things progressed in this ideal family and, and you're living a great life a world traveled life raising your kids with a lot of great experiences i'm really interested to see how this takes a turn um, we'll be right back two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Lindley. Lindley, tell us, um, so you've had this great relationship. You had a marriage that you did actually have great communication. You just never argued or yelled. Yelled, um, you just worked through things. Uh, You both are well-educated, living a pretty cool life, really, Uh, raising your kids overseas and uh, exposing them to a lot of different cultures and adopting children um you finally got your your two little girls what happens how did you how did this marriage that seems so perfect end in divorce i don't know the whole answer to that question yet (laughs) i don't even know if i want to but yes we were really blessed he he had his favorite commandment. He said, my favorite commandment is DNC 4222. Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart. Cleave unto her and none else. And he was just really, really dedicated. Also was served as a state president in Indiana for a full term, very faithfully. And life was just really great. It was after that that we moved to France and had wonderful experiences there. But I did notice after he after we got back from France, he seemed to get more stressed out, and I didn't know why, and he didn't tell me why, and he kept changing jobs every year or two for a little bit of time, and people would tell me, well, that's probably a sign where things weren't going well for him personally at that point, and he actually hid most of his problems from me. I think because he loved me and 
he wanted to spare me, but in some ways it's wrong. Like if you have depression or some big problem or an illness or something, you don't tell your spouse like once a decade you have a problem. It might be several times a day, and I would have been happy to help him through like whatever it was. So it was in May, May 26, two years ago, 2019. So that was Memorial Day weekend on that Sunday. And he he sat me down on the couch of an apartment we were just moving into. And and he said, I've been wanting to talk to you about something for a long time. And we sat maybe four feet apart and he put a, a piece of paper between us. And this was a letter that he was going to leave the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I was really, really surprised about that. Now, he didn't say he was leaving me. I asked him what about us, and he wasn't very clear. He didn't say he was leaving. But I immediately turned up my antenna to listen to what he was saying and what was going on, because I knew this is something he had been thinking about for a long time, and I had to play catch-up. It was the first time I ever felt alone in my marriage, because we shared everything, all of our thoughts and joys and activities, and at least I had shared everything. And so it it was pretty devastating. The... Wednesday after that, this is Sunday, I had eye surgery, and he, and it's hard to explain. The eye surgery was in Utah. It wasn't where we were living, but he was in Utah that week on business, and I had gone there to have my surgery. And so he picked me up at our Utah house, and we went to talk about, like, when are we going to tell the kids and things like that, just in our van. And when we drove back to the house, he wouldn't even walk me in, which really surprised me because I was under doctor's orders not even to leave my bed that day, and he wasn't even going to walk me into the house. And so that was a real big sign that that things are over. Um, and then the next Sunday, as I woke up, this so did he, piece of music. Did, did he stay with you at the house? No, actually, I guess I, I forgot. Monday, he, he left on his business trip, and then he never lived at home after that day. Oh, okay. He never gave me a chance to respond, to to change my behavior, to make him happier in the marriage, or even say my side of the story or anything. He was really sad in some ways. He, he did say, you've been perfect. I failed. And he doesn't talk that way anymore. Uh, He's actually mean to me and all the kids. But I think it's because he had trouble with one or more of the commandments, and he had hidden it and tried to live a double life and eventually decided that he would just give in and, and go the bad way. So that was kind of his turning point. Another thing that was funny about that was he was the ward executive secretary at the time, and he knew the bishop was going to be changed. So he thought that would be a good time to leave the church, which doesn't make any sense to me because the 
new bishop could want the same secretary, <clears throat> but... Sorry, I was just going to say, so it started when he first sat you down with that letter. He didn't say, I want a divorce, I'm leaving you, our marriage is over. He just said he was leaving your faith, but it's almost as if that then became the catalyst to the marriage is also over. Was there a conversation more directly where he then said, that's it, I'm leaving you and the kids as well? He told me he needed a little bit of space at the time. So I was thinking like two or three weeks to think about things, which also didn't make a lot of sense because he traveled almost every week for business. So he could just think while he was off on his business trip. But no, that Friday after he showed me the letter on Monday, he filed for divorce. And then he told me, yeah, yeah. And then he told me, he contacted me to tell me that the divorce papers were going to be delivered to me at a place. He he arranged to do it in a nice way, not by policemen. I don't even remember what that's called. But it being so, served. So he had to call me. Yeah, it was being served, but not by police. There's a there's another term for that. I think some kind of exception. And he called me to make sure I would be there to <clears throat> receive these papers in in the nice way. <laughs> So and did he ever did he ever have a conversation with you that said this is why I'm leaving our faith this is my concerns about it um did did he ever have an open dialogue with you about what shifted for him Well we've been talking for several years about the church's gay policy and we have a son who's gay and he talked about how he didn't like that. He said he felt like he couldn't be in a church that caused that pain and suffering on gay people. He felt guilty for that. And I said, I don't see how you make that connection. If you're not actually causing the pain or the policies, then I don't think you're guilty. But it turned out that was just all a front. Uh, When we were separating our accounts, one of the first ones I did was our our cell phone accounts. And I was looking at the calls, which I almost never do. And he had hundreds of calls to three particular numbers that I didn't know those numbers, sometimes, you know, several a day, like all within a month. And so at that point, I knew that there were other women in his life. So that was, that was something that my... Bishop had warned me might happen. I I know. <laughs> so so the new bishop that we got, he was a divorce lawyer with about forty years experience. So I thought that was a way of the Lord blessing me. And he he told me that I would probably at some point find some deep dark secret. And so when I did, I was actually at lunch break at work and I called my boss and I told her I needed the afternoon off. And then I called my bishop and I said, hey, I found the deep dark secret. And he said, okay, where are you? My wife and I will be right over. And so they were just so kind and helpful to me. How did you handle this news for your children? Did did your husband and you both sit down with them? Did did he ever have a conversation with them? I, I imagine he moved out and you stayed living in the home with whichever children were still young enough. Could you are you comfortable talking with that aspect of it at all? Sure, it was super hard for the kids. No, he was a great dad until maybe the last ten years when things started to go go bad for him, 
And I think he was such a good and spiritual person. It just took a long time to unravel the whole thing. So the older kids are more like, oh, okay, my dad, I used to respect you. Now I can't respect you. And that's the end of the relationship. The the younger kids have had a harder time and he's been he's been mean to them. He sent them nasty letters about how horrible their mother was that are full of lies and the kids realize that they're full of lies. And so the kids have had a hard time. There's one of my children that would even had become suicidal from from that because it was so so shocking and, and you know it changes your identity when you no longer have a parent that loves you and it's not I don't know if it's easier than for the spouse but I think it's it could be just as hard well the, I'm sure this has just been a lot and actually it's still pretty recent you're still processing a lot of this I'm sure on different levels yes yes it is and as I go through different stages since the since he left me, I have to adjust, and I keep working more on like who am I, who do I want to be, what's going on in my life, because everything changes. How you think, how you go through every day, what your responsibilities are, where you live, and it's just also new that there's a lot of change. Yeah, we need to take another break, and when we come back, um, let's talk about how you've been able to find resiliency in the light of all of these really complicated life changes for you. We'll be back in just a moment. And we're back with Lindley. Lindley, Tell us how you're, you've been able to pull yourself not only through this situation, but, but learn how to thrive and be able to take the steps that you're taking to move forward and, and try to figure out how to live what, what will be now your best life. Thanks, Michelle. I think it really started on June 5th. So this is a Tuesday, almost 10 days after the whole thing started. And by this time, it's clear to me that he's leaving me and that there's nothing I can do to salvage the marriage. He gave me no chance for any kind of rebuttal. And you can imagine I haven't slept well or eaten well over that period. So I'm at my desk at work. I have an office with a door that closes. And I have a little time at lunch where I don't have any meetings. And I decide that the best thing to do at that moment is to climb under my desk and have a little rest. So I'm hoping that nobody sees me. Like I gradually sink down in my chair and because there are windows on the outside of the office, but the, the desk is closed to the floor, so they wouldn't be able to see me under the desk. So I get down there, and I just start relaxing, and then my cell phone rings. And I'm like, oh, no, maybe it's one of my kids. Maybe one of my kids is suicidal or having a super hard time. So I thought I have to answer this, but I had left my cell phone up on my desk. So I have to poke up my ad and get my phone and then sneak back down under my desk. And I hope nobody saw me. And turns out it was my new bishop. So this poor guy, he's been bishop for two days. And he had gotten the notice from church headquarters that 
the high priest in his ward had requested to leave the church. And so he decided to call me and said, Sister Baker, how are you doing? And I said, well, I, I've been better. That was, that was the first time I used that term, and it, and it turned out to be quite helpful. I've been better, so it's not complaining, but admitting that things aren't so good. And as we talked, I felt like God was there, reaching his arm down through the skyscraper under my desk to comfort me through my bishop. And I, that was so powerful and the the Lord was showing his compassion for me and his love for me and comforting me to help me start to get through it. Besides that, I tried to keep some normalcy. My boss said, well, do you want to take a couple months off? And I'm like, well, I'd really like something in my life to be going well. well let me Let me keep working. And so she did, and she was actually kind to let me have time off as I needed to go see a lawyer or whatever to to deal with the, the situation. So I kept that, and I and I loved my ward, my church service. I was choir director in my ward and had just established the choir when they called me and moved in, and it was great experience for the whole ward, especially the people in the choir. So I loved that. At that time, I was also a temple worker at the Denver Temple, and I, I kept that up, and it was a great blessing for me to be in the place of peace and calm and, and revelation. I'd often bring questions and concerns about my new situation to the temple and I'd get an answer. Then I'd go home and I'll have a new new fright or concern and go back in a few days and God would take care of that one. So I felt very blessed to be able to keep those things up in my life. I couldn't really read anything except the scriptures. Uh, probably others who've been through a traumatic situation can relate. Your mind is just moving so fast it can't take anything in. And I could read my scriptures because I read them before, and, and that's not a surprise, but to take in new information wasn't possible. And one of my sons recommended to me the book Option B. It's by Sheryl Sandberg and yeah. Adam Grant. That was the and first book I read when I found out that my husband was diagnosed with cancer. It's a great book. Right, right. And I and she had Cheryl had a situation where her husband had a heart attack and died in his late forties with no warning and I talks about how she dealt with it. And Adam Grant is a psychologist and brilliant person and they they worked through some of the things and, and jointly wrote the book. And the most important part of the book for me was talking about avoiding the three P's, their personalization, pervasiveness, and permanence. And I was already partially there because of my, my faith in God and, I guess, my natural resilience. I, I think I developed some resilience raising six kids in four countries. But like personalization is meaning that it's your fault. And I realized, no, it's not my fault. And pervasiveness means because this one part of my life is horrible, my whole life is horrible. But I realized, no, my whole life isn't horrible. That part's horrible, but not all, not everything. And then permanence is the idea that everything will always just be as horrible as it is now. Nothing will ever get better. And so the idea of permanence 
and thinking, this is not permanent. Things will get better. That helped. Uh, another thing that helped me on that line is a quote from Winston Churchill, that if you're going through hell, keep going. And I really like that because it implied that hell was finite. And if you slow down, then you'll be there longer. So just try to keep going, try to pull through. So those are the things that really helped me early on. Those things are great. I love that. Yeah. I, I have never read that book yet. I'm going to have to look into it because you've, you've mentioned some things. I love that you acknowledge the role your faith played and that maybe your faith gave you that base for some resilience, but that resilience really does take more than just the philosophy or the faith of I'm going to be okay or I'm going to get through this. It's it's the action items. It, I love how you found comfort in some normalcy and if that normalcy was going to work or going to your volunteering or doing some things that feel like your old self again or, you know, that that concept where you can fall back on. I think a lot of people find when we're in the middle of these tragic moments, we get paralyzed. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. It feels like all is lost, that permanence and, and everything just feels over. And so oftentimes we just kind of seclude ourselves maybe in our own little world when in reality it can help us exercise that resilience to get out, to find ways to serve or to work or to just enjoy something beautiful in the world or try to breathe through one more day. But I love those things that you've shared and how your faith played the base for that and that you also just had to kind of buck up and do it. And I almost laughed out loud when you said, I think I gained some resiliency raising six kids in however many countries. Yep. I bet that gave you some pretty good exposure to resilience. I think that's an important piece of resilience, too, is to look at what we've been through in our life prior to the moment we're now in. And are there lessons that we could apply to what we're facing now, even if the details are very different? You know, can you look back in your past and say, hey, I've been through something hard before, or I faced disappointment before. Now, this is very different, but Again, that skill set, that muscle of resilience could be used again and again and hopefully get a little bit stronger each time. So thank you for sharing that. And let's make sure we put a link to that book in the show notes because I'm sure I'm not the only one who hasn't read it. And it sounds like it could be really beneficial to so many of us. Oh, absolutely. It's a great book. I really appreciate you coming on here and uh, talking to us today about these things. I, I think being able to find some kind of forgiveness and and some kind of peace so that you could accept what has happened and move on is, is a critical piece of all of it. When we're not willing to recognize uh, where we're at or how things have changed, um, you know, there's a lot of divorced people that I've met as I've become single where they're still hanging on to the marriage that they had. And and you can't really move forward when you're you're still angry about the things that happened in your past relationship. So um I love that those three Ps stood out to you and that you realized that these things weren't your fault. It's not all or nothing. It, it's not like, well, he left and now I'll never be happy again or he left and I'm never going to have the family I want. You haven't gotten to that all or nothing mindset. And then that permanence, not falling into that permanence of this is never going to be anything but what it is. And it's never going to get better than that. It, 
those are strong um, traits of resiliency, actually, in every single one of those. To be able to acknowledge things for what they are and then be able to make choices and decisions to move forward. All right. And it's it's interesting you brought up forgiveness. So at that point in my life, I had worked on forgiveness and I let people have their agency and, and was generally in the habit of forgiving people. And so initially I was just like, okay, well, that's your choice. You want to leave, you know, go ahead. And, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't going to be angry or bitter about it. But after a while, I realized it was kind of a really big thing to right. betray me. Right. And I started thinking about maybe I should like go through the process of forgiving him specifically for that thing. And it turned out uh, February, right before the coronavirus, I had the I, I had the opportunity. I made the opportunity to go to visit his family, and his family is really wonderful. Actually, I talked to my you could call her ex mother in law. I call her my Bakerside mom, and the first time after he left me and. She said, well, you've been in our family 35 years. Nothing he can do can change that. If you can't be my daughter-in-law, you can be like my daughter. And that made me cry. And then that coming February, I took some of my kids to go visit, and I wasn't sure how I would be treated or received. And everybody treated me just the same as always. They were, always, they were all friendly. Everyone came over to visit while while we were there. And I felt in that trip a great lifting of a dread that I didn't know I had. The dread was that I was going to lose half my extended family. And I knew I didn't lose them. So that was super exciting. And the, the night, one of the nights that I was staying at their house, I decided I would kneel at the bed and tell the Lord I forgave my ex or, or what he did. And that just also lifts your spirit, lifts your burden. And then then it's his problem. It's not your problem anymore. Right. Absolutely. Forgiveness yeah, is beautiful. It, it, forgiveness is such a powerful thing. And it really is our, our a gift to ourselves more than anything. Yes, right. We're freeing ourselves from that emotional weight. Well, Lindley, I love what you've shared with us. I love what you've taught us about this life experience you've been through. So, Lindley, thank you for joining us today. And uh, the story isn't over. You're going to join us again for part two on moving forward. So uh, for those of you who have joined us today, please subscribe for free to our podcast if you like what you've heard and give us a rating and a review. If you know someone who has a story about real life that they're willing to share or you're willing to share, you can send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient, on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And you're welcome to reach out to us through direct message. Uh, Either Jenny or I will contact you. Yes, and thank you. And remember, no matter what you do today, remember to be kind. 
You have no idea the struggles people are going through in their own lives. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.